Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon from Oak Hill Church in Humboldt, Iowa. We pray that it helps you to know Christ, grow in Christ, and sow Christ wherever you are. For more information about who we are and what we're doing, go to oakhillhumboldt.org. Have you ever had a moment where God put you in a specific situation for a reason and only you could respond to it? Perhaps it was a certain conversation that God placed you in and only you could speak into it. Maybe it was a difficult moment, and if you didn't act, no one else would. Life is a series of moments, some bigger than others. Some are what we could call defining moments, where you are essential. You must speak up. You must take action. You must intervene. You've got to do the hard thing or say the hard thing even though it might cost you something because people's lives are at stake. Now, if that hasn't happened to you yet, it will. And when it does, the question is this, will you have the courage to act? Will you be brave enough to speak? Will you seize your Esther moment? Today we're continuing our series called Supernatural Courage, and we're looking at the story of Esther. Esther had a defining moment in her life, and how she responded to it literally changed the course of history and the lives of God's people. And just like Esther, God is working in your life as well to change people all around you. And so with that in mind, let's start with Esther's backstory leading up to her defining moment. And if you're a kid out there, hopefully you picked up a coloring page today. Or if you're an adult who just likes to color while you hear a sermon, you're welcome to participate as well. But we're going to walk through the story of Esther. I'm not going to go to specific verses, but I'm going to kind of summarize the story uh, beginning here with the context. So this took place around 480 BC after God had sent his people into exile 100 years before. And there remained a large uh, Jewish community that, that resided in the capital city of Persia, the capital city of Susa, which is modern-day Iran. Now, Esther was one of those Jews who remained. She was an orphan girl uh, raised by her older cousin, Mordecai, who acted somewhat like a father figure uh, to her. And so these are the two main characters, Esther and Mordecai. They were the uh, protagonists in the story, if you will. The other two characters, the antagonists, uh, were King Xerxes. Now, as you make your way through Esther, you're going to see in Hebrew, uh, his name was Ahasuerus, but that's just so difficult to pronounce. I'm not going to go with that as we uh, talk about the king. I'll talk about him as the king of Persia or King Xerxes in Persian. So it was the king of Persia as well as this evil, cunning villain named Haman. So as we start in with the story in chapters 1 and 2, we see that the king of Persia is, is throwing this enormous banquet, this huge party. In fact, he's doing so to display his wealth and his greatness through a six-month-long party, which wraps up in a seven-day feast. 
And right away we see here, it doesn't take too long in chapter 1 to see the immoral uh, culture of this day. Lots and lots of drinking, lots of sex, and lots of murder. And so this is not your Veggie Tales story of Esther whatsoever. The real thing uh, puts us in a context that's not too different than our own. The king himself is really drunk. And so after years, or I'm sorry, months and days of partying, so to speak, he wants to show off his queen, Queen Vashti, to flaunt her in front of everyone. Now she refuses. She has the courage to refuse her king. And the king gets mad at this because women back then were basically considered property. Lest you think our culture is, is different than this, uh, some have called our culture today a pornified culture, where women are basically thought of as property, um, not real people. And though they might be willing participants in all of this, ask yourself if they really are. Many are struggling deep within with dark depression, and all kinds of issues. Today, we also have many hookup sites. You can actually get an app to hook up with people uh, sexually online. You know that even in Iowa, we see sex trafficking continue. And so this, this culture, though we may look at it from afar, thinking, wow, I can't believe that, that this is the way it was. We are seeing a culture much the same. So the king is mad, uh, banishes uh, Queen Vashti, and then because he needs a new king or new queen, he holds this uh, kind of national beauty contest, so to speak, where 400 women are basically chosen out of the women, the most beautiful, and then they're given a year of, of primping. Seems like a lot of time to prepare themselves for the king. Some have made the comment, it sounds a little bit like The Bachelor, I'm not going to go there uh, today, but this was even worse. Uh, this was kidnapping, human trafficking, and, and rape. Let's just call it what it is. I don't want to water down the story for you. This is really what's happening here in the story of Esther. And so the king eventually chooses Esther. Esther really has no choice in the matter, but she is the most uh, beautiful in his, his eyes, and she's gaining favor with all of the people there. And then toward the end of the chapter, we see this important scene. Uh, Mordecai, who's, who's living close around this area, he finds out that there's a secret plot. He, he hears a, overhears a conversation between two of the king's eunuchs, and he hears about uh, their plan to go and kill uh, the king. And so Mordecai hears this and tells Esther, who then tells the king and saves his life without him even knowing who did that. So this is an important detail for later. We move into chapter 3 now and enter Haman, the evil villain. The king had promoted him to the prime minister, gave him the signet ring, and the entire staff is to bow down to this evil man. And yet Mordecai would not. And, and, and the reason is maybe twofold. It says there in the scriptures, if you look, that this man, Haman, is an agatite. Uh, he's coming from a long history of, of kind of this tension and friction, bad blood between uh, the Jews and these Amalekites. And so already he's, he's on guard here when he finds out that Mordecai is a Jew. And so he becomes furious that 
Mordecai will not bow down to him, and he finds out he's a Jew as well, and so he hatches this plan to kill all the Jews, just to wipe them out, and tells the king while he's drunk, which happens to be most of the time throughout the story. So he must have said, why tolerate these Jews? Why even trust them? So he plays on the king's fear and pride, and in his drunken state, I don't think he even pays much attention and agrees. Unwittingly, signing over his wife's own death warrant in the process. And so we arrive at chapter 4. This is really the high point of the story of Esther. This is the defining moment. We'll come back to this again. Mordecai hears about this plot to kill the Jews, and he grieves, puts on sackcloth and ashes, and yet has faith in the midst of this grieving. He knows that deliverance will come. He's just not sure how. And so he sends this message to Esther, urgently telling her, you've got to do something. You have the king's ear. Esther basically replies, well, what can I do? I can't approach the king uninvited and and then questioning his decisions. Back then, uh, you could not appear before the king unless you were invited. It had been a month since she had come to the presence of the king, which also tells us something about how he didn't need her. Even physically, he had many different women. Just sad, sad story. So Esther's thinking, well, surely this warrants a death sentence if I come before the king uninvited. But Mordecai's response is timeless, and we'll come back to this. But look at Esther chapter 4, verses 13 to 14. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So Mordecai is is basically saying this is a defining moment for you. Esther, listen, you can't escape this. You're not safe. You can't keep silent. You must act on behalf of your people. God has put you in this situation for a reason. What will you do? And Esther's response here is to act in faith. She calls for a fast. And with every fast, there is prayer. Look at verse 16. Go gather all the Jews, Esther says, to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. I love that line. If I perish, I perish. I'm in God's hands. I'm going anyway. Moves into chapter 5 through chapter 10. Let me just kind of sum up the rest of the story. So the next day or thereafter, Esther enters the king's court with courage, but I think also with a sense of anguish and brokenness. She had been fasting for three days, and now risking her life, she asked him to come to a banquet tomorrow, and if he would invite Haman along with him. And so the king gladly agrees Nothing really happens at this first banquet, no mention of Haman's plan. So Haman walks away rather pleased with himself. He he got to meet with the king and the queen. He feels like he's got an in with them. 
But then he encounters Mordecai again, and he still won't bow down to him. This sets him off. And so he decides, well, I need to kill Mordecai as soon as possible. Tomorrow, in fact. And so he orders that a gallows be constructed 75 feet high in the air, a stake, which he plans to ask the king for permission to hang Mordecai on the next day. Now, as you're reading along, this is where some of the irony comes in, some of these twists and turns, because it just so happens that the king can't sleep that night. And he wakes up and he tells one of the guards to go get the royal records, perhaps like counting sheep at night. Maybe if I just read through the records, it's going to help me to go back to sleep. But he gets these royal records, and one of the books happens to be the one that recounts the story of Mordecai saving the king's life, which he had never heard about. The Persians wrote down everything. And so this was actually written down about what Mordecai had done five years earlier, and now just so happens that's the one that's handed to the king, and he reads about this, never hearing about it. And so the king gets up the next morning, and guess who walks in the room? Just so happens to be Haman. He's come to ask permission to hang Mordecai. And what happens next is actually pretty funny. If you're reading through the Bible, there's so much irony here. Before he could say anything, the king asks Haman, well, hey, what should be done for the man that the king wants to honor? And Haman's thinking, hmm, he wants to honor me. Wow, this is great. He's talking about me. And so he gives this grandiose idea to clothe him in the finest of robes and parade him all around the streets and to honor him. And the king says, well, that's a great idea. The guy I want to honor is Mordecai. Can you imagine the look on Haman's face? After this, he was madder than a hornet. He wanted to kill Mordecai even more. But that night, Esther gives a second banquet. And the king and Haman are there again. And this time, she tells the king about the plot against her people and reveals to him that she is a Jew. And the king asks her, well, who has done this? And she says, it's him, it's Haman. Well, the king is furious. He runs out of the room in a drunken rage as Haman pleads with Esther to, to save his life. He apparently falls on top of her in all of this. And guess who walks in again at that very moment? The king. The king is like, what now? Are you trying to harm my wife? And so orders Haman, get this, to be hung on the next available gallows, which just so happens to be the one Haman had constructed the previous day for Mordecai. What an incredible turn of events. And so it is that Esther saves the Jewish people. Her courage was like a trigger that led to Haman's downfall, that led to the rise of Mordecai, and the redemption of God's people. Now, many have pointed out that Esther is the one book in the Bible where God's name is never mentioned. Did you know that? Seemingly absent from the story, hidden from us, and yet there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. Even though his name was never mentioned, we, the readers, are supposed to recognize him, 
to trace his hand, to look for God who is always working behind the scenes to deliver his people. Even when we think he's absent, he's still present doing more than what our eyes can see. I want you to think about the so-called coincidences in this story, the just-so-happened circumstances that led to Esther being in this position. One pastor points out the following. Queen Vashti just so happens to upset the king, and he just so happens to hold a contest to replace her that Esther ends up winning. And Esther just so happens to be Mordecai's cousin, who just so happens to hear about this evil plot to kill the king. And it just so happens that for some reason, he isn't honored at this point, but his act of heroism gets buried in a book. And it just so happens that the night before Mordecai is to be hanged, the king can't sleep. And it just so happens that the book they pull off the shelf tells the story of Mordecai saving the king's life. And it just so happens that when the king decides to honor Mordecai first thing in the morning, lo and behold, it just so happens the first one to walk in the room is Haman. And it just so happens at the banquet where Esther unveils Haman's evil plan, the king just so happens to come back at that moment, he thinks Haman is trying to harm his wife. And it just so happens that when the king orders Haman to be hanged, the only gallows available is the one Haman built for Mordecai. Listen, you can't write a better script than that. This is obviously the work of a divine author. I want you to think about your life how God has been working behind the scenes, providentially moving the pieces, arranging the circumstances, lining up everything just right. I was reminded of this this past week when Facebook reminds you uh, of a memory. And so take a look at this picture here, uh, this first picture. So um, this was actually taken 24 years ago when I was a 19-year-old kid. And on Facebook, it was probably about six years ago that I had stumbled across this, and I put this picture here on Facebook. I had worked at a Bible camp in Okaboji as a camp counselor, and all of that is an amazing story in and of itself. But one of the day camps that God sent me to was Humble, Iowa, where I helped lead a day camp at one of the churches here in town. That's ironic, huh? That years later he knew that I would be put here in this place. So thankful. He already had that in his plan. So I still keep that as a reminder. You are providentially always working in ways I can't even see. But even more than that, this past week, Luke had a baseball tournament. Originally it was scheduled in Emmitsburg. Uh, They moved it to Okaboji of all places. And so yesterday, uh, Luke and I had a good you know, guys' time together as we drove there and back, and uh, he had a tournament there in Okaboji, and I stumbled across a friend of mine who I hadn't seen for years, an old college friend of mine, and he looked a little different, so he had a hat on, but I was like, hey, Chad! So show the picture there of Chad. So I want to tell you a little bit about this guy and, and what God had done in my life, and I think he was trying just to encourage me and remind me of his providence. So back in college at the University of Northern Iowa, I'm starting out, I'm really kind of teetering on the fence here in my walk with Jesus. And this guy, I mean, he was really, really excited about Jesus. Just passionate, um, energetic. 
And he had no trouble coming right up to me, and I was in one of those kind of, I'm too cool maybe for the college ministry, I'm just going to kind of keep it, you know, maybe there later on. And he came up to me, just kind of gave me a hug and said, hey, come with me uh, tomorrow night to basic. Huge gathering. At that time, it wasn't huge. It was only about 50 people just kind of starting off. Um, by the time I was a senior, it was up to 900 people that came. Crazy how God moved on the campus of Northern Iowa. But, but this guy believed in me as a leader. Only a couple of years older than I was. Uh, was the president of Fellowship of Christian Athletes. We called it Fellowship of Christian Anybody's because there weren't a lot of athletes as a part of that group. Um, and he, he passed on the torch to, to me, and, and then I was the president of that group. He was the program director at Ogaboji uh, Bible Camp, and, and I later became program director. And so this guy made a huge influence on my life. And so it was great to see him. It was also very humbling, and he wouldn't mind me sharing this. He's had a difficult um, journey with some mental health issues that have basically laid him out. He was a man that was pursuing full-time ministry, and now, I love this, he works with special needs kids, and he loves them. Um, and I had a great time just talking to him. But I was reminded, man, God, you're so good. You're always working behind the scenes. You're, you're putting people in my path. You're, you're always working in and through your providence to, to write a script for our lives. God is writing a script, weaving together a story, and you and I have a role to play in his redemptive plan, even though we may not see the half of it until later. Esther here had a defining moment that changed her life and the lives of her people, and we have defining moments as well. So what can we learn from her life of courage and faith? We learn how to seize the moments. We do. These Esther moments, and to have faith and to act. Guys, faith always moves. It takes action. Even when it's hard, courage is faith in action. Courage is faith in action. So I want to use the word ACT as an acronym for how we can seize our Esther moments this summer. The courage to act begins with the letter A, acknowledge. Acknowledge this is a God-ordained moment. With Mordecai's help, Esther acknowledged that this was a God-ordained moment in her life. In verse 14, he says, Who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? In other words, this is not a coincidence. This is providence. This is God's doing, preparing you for this very moment. And so don't miss it. Don't miss it. And listen, in reality, every moment is a God-ordained moment. He's in absolute control of the universe and your little life and mine. But our little lives are part of his much bigger plan, so every moment matters, just some more than others. Esther had a defining moment in her life, and she responded with faith and with courage. She acknowledged that this is a God-ordained moment. And what I love about this is that God chooses, think about who God chooses here, a young, orphaned, immigrant, with a checkered past to bring salvation to his people. It reminds us that God doesn't always choose the impressive and strong ones. He chooses the rather unimpressive, weak ones. And when he chooses you, look up to him and acknowledge that this is a God-ordained moment. 
Secondly, we see not only to acknowledge, but we see to call, to call upon God for help. Esther's response to Mordecai in verse 16 again is this, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. And so she, she calls a fast. Why? Fasting is a way of calling out to God for help. This much, oh God, this is how much I need you. I'm willing to forego eating and, and drinking because I'm seeking your help. I need you. And it's not explicitly mentioned here, but fasting was always accompanied by prayer, calling out to God for supernatural courage and help and wisdom, even willing to ask others to join us, just as Esther did. I was thinking to myself, how often do I do this? How often do we do this when we're faced with moments that seem too big for us? They're not too big for God. He thrives in these moments when we feel desperate and dependent. Our weakness meets his strength. Our insufficiency meets his sufficiency. Our lack of wisdom and resources meets his infinite supply of both. So sometimes, guys, we're going to be put in situations where we can't spend a lot of time seeking God in prayer. He gives us a moment where all we can do is maybe fling up a quick arrow prayer to God for help. For instance, some of you here this summer are going to be put in a situation, maybe a conversation with a family member or a friend or a neighbor or a coworker. And there it is, it's right in front of you, an opportunity that God has has given to you to speak up, to not keep silent, but to boldly speak words that are needed in that moment. A word of love, a word of encouragement, a word of correction, a word of hope, a gospel word that God ordained for you to be the channel, the channel for someone else to come to Jesus. Are you asking for those opportunities, praying for those opportunities? And will you have the courage in that moment to act, to acknowledge, hey, this is a God-ordained moment right here. I'm calling out to you for help. I'm speaking up. I'm going in. It might be a moment where God puts you in a specific situation when someone's hurting, and only you are the one in that moment that can show love in a very practical and powerful way. Will you have the boldness to act? So act, acknowledge, call out, and T, trust. Trust the outcome with God. In the end, Esther had a courage to act in faith, but ultimately she trusted in God for the outcome. Look at verse 16 again at the end. It says, then I'll go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Now remember, Mordecai had told Esther that if you keep silent, deliverance will come from God nonetheless, one way or another. Yet that certainty didn't stop him from telling Esther to act. In fact, it gave them both courage to act. In other words, Esther thinks, if God is in this, he will do this. He will make our plans succeed. But even if he doesn't, I'm trusting him. The outcome is in his hands. I'm still speaking up, still moving out in faith, still obeying him, but the outcome is in his hands. If I perish, I perish. Thought about that phrase, if I perish, I perish. That line can be looked at in two different ways when it comes to our lives. Number one, 
It can be looked at as a courage to step out in faith toward Christ. Listen, some of you, some of you in this room, this story can be seen as an awakening. A new beginning, like a prodigal coming home, willing to take the risk, coming to Jesus and trusting the outcome with God. God, I don't know how this is going to affect my future, what my family might think of me, what my friends might think of me, but I know I need to surrender to Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I need to die to myself and my old way of life and to trust him. This might be a defining moment for you today. It's never too late to step toward Jesus in faith. Secondly, this is courage to give your life for another. If I perish, I perish. I'm willing to give my life, to die to myself and bring life to others. It's the the way that we follow not only Esther but Jesus as well. In Matthew 10, uh, 38 to 39, we see these words of Jesus. And whoever does not take his does not take his cross and follow me, is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Loses his life for my sake. Esther stood at the crossroads of life here. This was a life or death moment for her and her people. And it's true of us as well. It's not physical, but it's emotional and spiritually. People are in need here in this community. They are. And the need is urgent. There are hundreds, perhaps thousands of people around us that need Jesus this summer. How can we sit by and just let this summer be about us? We've got to keep pointing people to Jesus, sowing Christ in our sphere of influence, and that may require a death to self in order to bring life to others. It may not be comfortable to invite someone to church. It may not be convenient to make room for someone else around the table. It may not be easy to listen to someone hurting and get into their broken lives. It might feel like death to us. Can we say with Esther, if I perish, I perish. In this way and so many others, Esther points us to Jesus. Philippians 2, 6 through 8 says this, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Esther is a pointer to Jesus. Think about this. Esther entered a throne room no one else could rightfully enter. She was willing to face the king's wrath to protect others from it. And she saved God's people because she wasn't afraid to die. She was both a mediator and a sacrifice for her people. And yet Jesus is the greater mediator. Jesus is the greater sacrifice. In 1 Timothy 2, 5 to 6, it says, There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for Many. And so this story, just like every story in the Bible, is pointing us to Jesus and how we can trust in him and live for him even this summer. So this summer, as we close, God's going to give us Esther moments. Big and small, he will give us defining moments. And the question is, will we have the courage to act? Will we seize these moments in our homes, in our relationships, in our workplace, in our neighborhoods? There are people that God will put into your life who need your help. 
And in those moments, will you have the courage to act? Will you acknowledge this is a God-ordained moment? Will you call out to God for help? And will you trust God with the outcome? Will you be brave to speak up and move out in faith, even if it means dying to yourself, that others might live? My prayer this summer is that we would seize our Esther moments for who knows whether we are in Humboldt for such a time as this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story that reminds us of your good providence over our lives. Though your name is never mentioned in the story, we see and trace your hand running throughout. And that's true in our lives as well. Sometimes we don't see up close what you're doing, but we know you're always working, putting people in our paths, helping us to see the beauty of Christ and his redemptive plan for our lives. Lord, I pray that we would rise up and have the courage of Esther in this world that is so God-forsaken, that we would move in the lives of people with love and compassion, and we would move in courage and faith, speaking up when we need to, loving people in practical and powerful ways. Lord, use us this summer for your glory. We pray in Christ's name, amen.